We might have a little bit of an unusual topic. Uh, it was requested this week, and I think probably because we had slightly touched on it Wednesday during Bible study. Uh, you'll probably recall that Wednesday we began to talk a little bit about idolatry. Uh, and so I got the request, uh, could I go back and spend some time on it? And so today we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the history of idolatry and talk a little bit about its existence today. Uh, and as I do that, uh, for its existence today, I'm really going to just summarize it into really a couple of points because it would involve so much. So I'll just kind of break it down into two, two general points. But let's start off as we talk about idolatry, really by going way back and acknowledging the history that we have regarding idolatry. We can go back and look throughout history and we will see that there are a number of people who have engaged in idolatry. Uh, one of the things you'll also notice is that idolatry and superstition are oftentimes very close companions. Maybe you guys know people that are superstitious, where they think that if they don't do something a certain way, they will be punished. Or if they do something a, uh, the correct way or they do it the same way every time, they will be rewarded. It's a superstitious belief, but it's based on a religious idea. And so you oftentimes will find those to be uh, very close companions. Throughout history, various people in various places at various different times uh, have indulged in idolatry. Sadly to say, even God's people have been found indulging in idolatry. So let's go on over to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at a passage that probably many of you are familiar with. I know we have looked at this in, in the past. But let's begin to get a breakdown of uh, God's people even succumbing to idolatry. We're going to go from Exodus 20, then down to Exodus 32. But follow along, Exodus 20, verse, starting in verse 2. Moses records for us by inspiration, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Well, let me pause there for just a second. I think what we have recorded for us by inspiration from Moses is pretty clear regarding idolatry, right? We are to worship only God, and he says, don't make graven images, don't be involved in idolatry. This is in Exodus 20. Now let's go just 12 chapters. Let's go to Exodus 32. This is not very long after they have been told this. Exodus 32, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Now you guys are going to remember that uh, Moses is away from the camp there. He is up on, on the mount. And it says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron. This is Mo Moses' brother. And they said unto him, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this, Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. Right? They hadn't seen him. He's been up there for a while. So they tell his brother Aaron, go ahead and just make us some gods. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it of a molten calf. And they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Well, let me pause for just a second. That's not how they got out of Egypt. Uh, God clearly took them out of Egypt. Miraculously, we even have the parting of the sea. 
But they haven't seen Moses who led them out, and so they tell his brother Aaron, make us some gods. And he takes all the gold, and he makes earrings, and he fashions it with his hands, and he makes an idol. Now, if you'll recall, I'm not going to read it, but if you go down to verses 19 through 20, Moses shows back up. He sees what they're doing. He actually breaks the tablets, takes this calf, he throws it into the fire, he burns it up and takes the ashes, he mixes it with water, and he makes the people of Israel drink it. I mean, here he is. He's only been gone for a short time. He comes back, and they are involved in idolatry. Well, the command to not be involved in idolatry was not very hard to comprehend. As a matter of fact, it hadn't even been very long since they'd been told. And yet, we can go back and look here, and we see that the people of God had succumbed to idolatry. Uh, and the risk, of, the risk of succumbing to idolatry was, was so risky, and, and the consequences were so hard, that they literally had warned the Israelites about when they came into this new land. They were to be, they were to be careful. They were to be uh, precautionary. Let's go on over to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, because as they come into this land, he literally is going to point out there are seven different groups that I do not want you to marry with. And he tells them why. The reason is, is it could risk them uh, to go into idolatry. Listen to Deuteron Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whether thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. What's he telling them? These seven nations, when you come in, I don't want you to intermarry with these people. And the reason would be that it would put you at risk into worshiping other gods. Now, guys, let's bring this to a real logical stance today. How many of you guys know somebody who is in an in a intermixed religious marriage? What I mean is, is you've got you got one who's a Baptist and one who's a Catholic, or one who's a one who's a Pentecostal and one who's a um, whatever. It always happens. You know what the first question is usually? How are we going to raise our child? When I got married, I was a Catholic. My wife was a Methodist. I don't know why she was a Methodist because her parents were Methodists. I was a Catholic because my, my whole family has always been Catholic. That caused problems. You know, one of the first questions I had when we got married and we had a child, how are we going to raise a child? That's exactly what he's telling him is going to happen if you guys marry these idolatrous people when you come into the promised land. So he's saying, don't yoke yourself to these idolatrous people. Here's the thing, though. As we go back and we look in the Old Testament, that's not the only place we find idolatry. Matter of fact, let's go on forward towards the New Testament. Let's go on over to Acts chapter 17, because we have Luke who records in the New Testament that Paul, he interacts with these Gentiles there in Athens, specifically at Mars Hill, and they are involved in idolatry. So you have idolatry all the way back at the very beginning in the Old Testament, and it comes all the way through a number of times. Isaiah deals with it too. We're going to read that here in a little bit. Uh, but that same act carried over even into our inspired New Testament. 
Follow along with me in Acts 17, 16. And notice when Paul shows up and he sees what's taking place. Remember, now, Paul was a devout Jew prior to becoming a Christian. He was always very religious, wasn't he? He realized uh, that being a Jew was not an authorized form of worship, and that's why he became a Christian. Right? And keep in mind today, guys, Jews still do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, Paul realized that Jesus was the Messiah, and so he left his old religion, and he, be he became a Christian. People are still doing that today. But notice what he saw when he gets to Mars Hill, Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Well, he's there in a Gentile city, and he notices that there are statutes or idols all over the place. Basically, whatever you wanted to worship, it was there. Now, let's go on over to Acts 17, 22. Notice what Paul tells him. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, and he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, him I declare unto you. All right, so here's what's going on. He shows up in Athens, he finds all these different idols for them to worship. They were religious people, so religious that they were fearful that they might have forgotten a god. So they created all the gods they were aware of. I'm using that term gods with a little g. They built all the gods they were aware of, but fearful they might miss one, they made another one and put to the unknown god. And Paul says, I'm here to declare that unknown god unto you. He actually goes on and tells them that this behavior he sees them doing was due to ignorance. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. Let's go on over to Isaiah 44, 6 through 20. This is actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible, <clears throat> at least regarding idolatry. Isaiah 44, follow along with me. I'll read from verse 6 down to verse 20. I could read uh, just a couple of verses, but I want to get to the whole context, context here. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. And who, as I, shall call, and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people? And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have, I, have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? The answer there is no. Yea, there is no God. I know not any. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit, and they are their own witness. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god, or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen they are of men. Let them all be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together." The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashion it with hammers and worketh with his strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water and is faint. So this is a guy, he's really working hard to build this idol. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with the compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house." 
He dwelleth, he heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh, he roasteth roast, and it is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven, graven image. He falleth down unto it, and he worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. And they have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding, to say, I have burned part of it in the fire, yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof, I have roasted flesh and eaten it, and I shall make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes, a deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? All right, what's he saying? I want to paraphrase a little bit. How can you think that an idolatrous God that you carved out of a piece of wood and the rest of the wood you actually use to heat your house and to cook your fire with is going to actually help you? Let that sink in for a minute. You cut down a section of a tree, part of it you heat your food with, the other part of it you cook your or you heat your house with, and then what's left over you carve into, a, into an idol. And then you think that you can pray to it and it's going to help you. Well, unfortunately, numerous times as we look throughout the Scriptures, we see that people have either been turned away from God and or kept away from God through various different forms of idolatry. So let's talk a little bit about idolatry today. <clears throat> You're probably thinking, well, I don't, I don't believe I've ever actually seen anybody bowing down to an idol. Uh, I don't see idolatry taking place around me. Uh, Oftentimes, I think when we begin to think about idolatry, we think about bowing down or giving devotions to some type of a, of a statue or an image. Well, let me say this, that still occurs. You probably haven't seen it. Uh, I have seen it. Uh, and so let's spend a little bit of time talking about that. And I'm just going to use a couple, of, uh, a couple of different groups as we talk in generalities. The first ones that come to mind would probably be Buddhists and Catholics. Now, if you ask a Buddhist and or a Catholic, do you worship idols? They will tell you, no, we don't worship idols. But if you ever watch a Buddhist worship, they worship at the feet of an uh, image of Buddha. And if you go and if you're involved in uh, Catholic worship, which I was, I was an altar boy, uh, I've been, I spent a lot of time in the Catholic religion. You will find that they also oftentimes will pray at the feet of statues and or dead saints, uh, even at the feet of Mary. Now, even more so, if you begin to think about I'll stay on Catholicism. People can't get mad at me since I was a Catholic and I'm speaking from experience. When I was younger, I was given and I always wore a St. Christopher's medal. Does anybody know what that is? Well, for those who are Catholic, he is considered to be the patron saint among Catholics, specifically for protection when traveling, uh, but also for protection of children and also for various illnesses. And so, if you want to be protected as a Catholic, you wear your St. Christopher medal. 
It's almost as illogical as taking a piece of wood, cutting part of it up to cook my food and heat my house, and taking the other part and making a god out of it and say, this will keep me safe. Well, the Catholics would say, we don't worship idols. We don't do any of that. And yet, remember when I told you superstition and idolatry are often hand in hand? The idea that I could walk around with my St. Christopher's necklace on as a, as a younger person and that I was protected, it was a combination of one, superstition, but two, a differing form of idolatry. If you have ever gone to a, a Catholic wedding, almost always you will find that the young bride, well, I guess she could be an older bride, will always go to the feet of the statue of Mary and she will pray to Mary in blessings for having children. I don't, I don't remember reading that in my Bible. You guys ever remember reading anything like that in your Bible? There's a couple problems with it, and I'm not going to make this a lesson on Catholicism, but here's two of the problems. One, you've got unauthorized prayer. We're nowhere taught anywhere to pray to Mary, and I'm not going to spend time on that lesson because it's, it's just it's not found in the Bible, so I'm not going to even address it further than that. And two, what you have is a form of superstition mixed into... Really, idolatry. You've got someone literally praying at the feet of a statue to Mary, asking them to bless them. People don't think that it still continues on today, but it does. And, and again, they think of it as something seen in the past, but not being carried out today. It is being carried out today. It's being carried out in countries all around the world in various different forms. Actually, let me point something else out here. So I'm not going to say who this was or how I know them, but I know a person here in Michigan who told me last year that they traveled up to a, to a statue here in the uh, northern the upper peninsula, uh, and they went there specifically to pray for miraculous healing for a person who was sick. Let me let you in on a little secret, guys. I asked them, did it work? You guys want to know what the response was? It didn't work. It didn't work. The idea of traveling hours to get up there, apparently there was a ton of steps to walk up, which was very difficult. And then by the time they got up there, they prayed, and they waited, and they waited, and it didn't happen. And then they thought, well, maybe it'll happen later. Maybe it takes a while. And they went back home, and guess what? It, it never happened. What you have is a, really a, a case of superstition mixed with a form of idolatry. Now, if you were to ask those people, do you guys indulge in idolatry, they would tell you no. But the facts speak for themselves, don't they? Now, again, we're going to break this down a little bit more, but the first thing we're going to do, actually, uh, as we talk about superstitions and idolatry, we're going to go into what's authorized devotion. How many of you guys have seen the numerous cases where, it's often usually with Catholics, where they say they saw, they saw an image of Mary or they saw an, an image of Jesus? I see that all the time. As a matter of fact, they, they see Jesus or Mary's face in everything from fondue pots to, to clouds, right? And it's all the time. Matter of fact, if you go look at the Catholic news, I, matter of fact, I went there this week, I looked through the Catholic news, and they came back and they said, hey, uh, it was stated that Mary came to one of our congregations. We, we know that because they dropped a, a, there was a red rose on the ground, and so they went in, you know, you, uh, you have to actually verify that the miracle, miracle occurred. Well, lo and behold, they had cameras there, and the person who said they saw Mary there in the building was caught on camera dropping the red rose very discreetly as she walked on out. And so the archbishop came up and said, well, there was no, there was no miracle confirmed. Video surveillance actually proved that it was one of our people at the congregation. People oftentimes want so bad for something to be true 
that they will literally lie to get other people to believe it. What they need to do is just focus on what's authorized, authorized devotion. Let's go back. I'm going to go back to Exodus 20, verse 3. We already looked at this. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, when God tells Israel that they're not to have any other gods before him, what he is saying is, is the nation of Israel, his chosen people, his selected people, they owe him exclusive devotion. That means no other gods, no images, nothing in your life is to come before me. I am the Lord. I am the Lord of all creation, including you, and therefore only I am worthy of devotion. So what do the scriptures actually say about uh, approved devotion? I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but as we look at the Scriptures, all the way starting back in Genesis and continued all the way through into the New Testament, we find that there is one deity. Okay, We know that there is one God, specifically Ephesians 4, 6. We also know that there is one deity, but three persons. We have the first person of the Godhead, the Father. We have the second person of the Godhead, the Lagos, who then became incarnate and was Christ. And we have the third member of the Godhead, which is the Holy Spirit. Specifically, you can find all three mentioned in Matthew 28, verse 19. So this excludes any devotion to any other God, to any other item, to an idol, to a St. Christopher's necklace, or to anything in my life that would come first before God. All of those would encompass the idea of idolatry. And that's why we have Jesus saying this over in Matthew 22, verse 36. I'll read down to verse 40. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Notice his answer. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Sounds like he's quoting from Deuteronomy, doesn't it? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You know what? If everybody were to do this, not only, would, not only would we not have any idolatry of any form in the world, there wouldn't even be any hatred in the world. What we would simply have are faithful followers of God, and as a matter of fact, we'd have unity. We're nowhere close to that in our modern society. But we do have a lot of people who claim to be followers of Christ, so let's go on over to 1 John 5, 1 through 3. We're in 1 John on our Bible study. We haven't gotten to this chapter yet, although I did mention one of the passages last week. Follow along with me. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And some people will stop there and say, that's all you've got to do. You just, all you have to do is just believe, in, just believe in Jesus. Let's keep reading, though. And everyone that loveth Him that begot that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God, notice this, and keep his commandments. For all those people that love to say, all you got to do is just believe in Jesus, tell them to keep reading. Keep reading. You will find nowhere in our scriptures where it just says, believe in God. The Jews, they believed in God. Think about all the things they were required to do as followers of God. And it never changed in the New Testament. Do we have to believe in God? Absolutely. 
but we have a whole lot more to do. He says to keep his commandments. He goes on, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Now, I'm not going to go into any detail, but slide on down real quick to verse 21. Do you find it interesting that he ends the chapter by saying this? Keep yourself from idols. Now, we touched on that on Wednesday. I think that's probably the purpose that the lesson was requested. Rejecting idolatry is not enough. We actually learn we have to actively pursue faithfulness to God by keeping His Word. Now, part of that is rejecting all forms of idolatry. But guys, this is a real problem today. Far too many people in the world want to go around saying, you know, I love God, I love God, but they, they don't put forth any effort in trying to remain faithful to God in the keeping of His commandments, as we are told by inspiration that we must do. Let's go on over to Matthew 7, 21 through 23, because this really describes really the world around us in general. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let me pause. There's a lot of people who are saying they believe Jesus. And he says, a lot of these people are not going to heaven. Let's keep reading. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What's his will? The last will and testament, right? The New Testament. That's, that's the will of Christ. It tells us how to live as Christians. tells us how to worship as Christians. tells us everything we need to know, right? That's the will of the Father, which is in heaven. He goes on, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? There are people doing that today, they think. He goes on. And in thy name have cast out demons. That's occurring today. And in thy name done many wonderful works. You've got a lot of people who say they're doing good things and they're doing it in the name of Christ. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That word there is sin. These are people claiming to love Jesus, do things for Jesus, and he says, I never knew you. Why? Well, it's clear that they weren't doing the will of the Father. They thought they were doing good things. Maybe they thought what they were doing was authorized or it was acceptable. It's clear that it was not. For various reasons, people who claim to be followers of Christ, that includes all of us. We could be at risk for this. Let's not, let's not you know, I sometimes will mention this group does that. Or, let's not forget that we're, we're also susceptible to doing these things. And for various reasons, people who are followers of Christ are going to be rejected. And I will submit to you that the reason is very simple. One, they're not adhering to the will of the Father. And further, I will submit to you that many of them have been led astray through various forms of idolatry. And really, that's where John read from Colossians 3, 1 through 6 that we started off. But let me break it down in a way that it makes sense. Let's go on over to Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I quote that passage all of the time. And here's the problem. They have to diligently seek him. There are an awful lot of people today who want to, sell, uh, want to separate the diligent from the actual seeking. What I mean is, is they're willing to seek God as long as they can do it on their terms. How many of you guys know people who are spiritual, but they don't attend worship? I work with a lot of people in my secular workplace who are like that. Spiritual people, they say they're seeking God, but they're wanting to do it on their own terms. Too many people, they want to seek God on their terms, not His, not his terms. And I think for many of them, 
the reason really is some form of idolatry. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. There is an awful lot of people that either don't want to put their souls first or they don't want to put the church of Christ first. And oftentimes it's because there's some type of an idol in their life. So let's begin to get a, a, a few uh, examples of forms of idolatry we see today. Now I could have came up with a very long list and we could have gone each item and that would have taken forever. So what we're going to do is kind of break this down into some of the things we see going on in society. And I want you to pay very close attention. The things I'm going to mention in and of themselves are not necessarily idolatry. However, they could very easily, and they, they are currently for many people, uh, various forms of idolatry in their lives. And the reason is, is because uh, they place a higher devotion to these things than they do to God, or they allow these things to keep them from being faithful to God, or they allow these things to keep them from even obeying the gospel. Let me mention the number one. I, I told you I'd break it down in, really into two. Money, jobs, and success. This is one of the biggest forms of idolatry that we have within the society that we live in, which is part of the reason I wrote the bulletin article that we have today. We live in a very wealthy, very materialistic society, right? You have to have the certain car. You have to have a certain form of clothes. You have to have a very nice house. The list goes on and on. And as a matter of fact, people judge you based on all of those, right? You don't want to walk in somewhere and someone kind of put their nose down because you don't have what meets up to their standards. And so, people, don't, people are embarrassed by that. Matter of fact, how many of you guys know people who were poor growing up and they made it their life's mission to become wealthy or to get money? They were tired of embarrassment. They were tired of always being looked down on. And so, they made their mission to go out and to become wealthy, to make money, to not have to feel like that. And... This has literally become an idol in their life. I'm not going to worship because I remember as a child, of course, I didn't know the Bible, uh, but I, I, thought, I thought Sunday was the Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday, right? That's when the Jews worship. Christians worship on Sunday. But I told my dad, he always worked Sunday, every Sunday, because it was double time. And I said, Dad, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And he said, the Bible was written before double time, right? That's what he said. Those are his exact words. The Bible was written before double time. So I learned real quick where his, where his devotions and his interests were. They weren't, they weren't in things of a religious nature. They were making money. They were being well off. They were being, being comfortable. Let's go on over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Because this, is, this has affected people all throughout the world and even those within con uh, local congregations. Notice what Paul tells Timothy. He doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Let me point that out before I even read the passage. Listen very closely. For the love of money. We're talking about people who are obsessed with money. And it causes them to do all kinds of things. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Let me pause. You can have money. I have money. Uh, I don't have as much probably as I'd like to have. But I have more than enough. Right? And I'd say that's... If any of you guys actually were walking down the street and some guy came up and said, Hey... Guess what? I'm feeling generous today. I'm going to give you a million dollars. Just take it. I see Larry's already got his hand out, right? We'd take it. It makes our life a little easier, right? But I'm not going to go out and do illegal things or unethical things or, or violate the Scriptures in order to get money, right? That's people who have the love of money. He says, 
For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they're trying to get it, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with righteous pierced themselves through with many sorrows, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Anytime somebody begins to place money above their faithfulness to God, we know very clearly it has become an idol in their life. They may not be bowing down to some carved image. Uh, they may not even be going to some temple and bowing down to it, right? But they're declaring through their actions where their allegiance is. How many of you guys know somebody? Matter of fact, I'm, there's a certain person I know is not here right now, and I know it's probably because they work, and I've asked them, how come you're not here? They haven't been here in a long time. How come you don't come on Sundays? Well, I have to work. And I get that there may, there may come a very unusual time where once in a while that happens, uh, and you're, you're, you don't have any intent to leave your job, you have a good job, but something happens, and you've got to go in. I get that. I get that, right? We're talking about people who on a regular basis, they're just, they're just not coming because money is the forefront of their mind. Same thing with on Wednesdays, right? I'm not coming on Wednesday night. I had an opportunity to pull an extra 12 or pull an extra four so I get 12 hours in. So money, jobs, success, material wealth, that is one of the biggest forms of idolatry we see today. But people don't see it because they're not bowing down to an idol, right? What they're doing is they're actually bowing down to their paycheck. What's the other one? Well, it could be hobbies and interests. Uh, seems to me this is becoming more of a major form of idolatry due to society. Uh, many have allowed their, their personal interests, the things they're involved in. Sometimes it is could be, could be uh, matters of lust, could be just personal hobbies, could be a number of things based in society that people are allowing to hinder themselves from being faithful followers of God. I jotted down just a couple. How many of you guys know somebody who is literally obsessed with either collegiate or professional sports? I can't come to worship because i got to drive two hours to get to the stadium. I want to be there early because we, we always tailgate on Sundays. So i got to get there early, so this Sunday is going to be out, right? Are sports inherently sinful? No. But if it keeps me from coming to worship on a regular basis because I'm following the, which I would never follow this team if I followed any, but I'm following the Patriots from place to place. I know, I wouldn't follow the Patriots either. But if I was, that's, that's, it's become an idol in my life. How about politics? I have strong political views, but I don't mix them with my religious views, and I certainly don't allow it to cause, cause me to change what I would do regarding the Scriptures. Uh, for a lot of people, they, they become obsessed with not only sports, but things like politics. And they allow it to, to uh, affect their daily life. It, it literally is all they think about. And, and personally, I, I, I have a lot of strong political views. I've gotten to where I, don't watch, I haven't watched the news in forever. I tell you guys this all the time, and then I'll fall back into it, and I'll watch it for a while until I get angry, and then I'm like, I'm done with it. It becomes a problem for many. could be Facebook, right? How about personal hobbies? You know, you got people who have a ton of uh, hobbies. They like to go fishing. They do that. You got to get out. What's it? What's the old saying, right? You got to get out early. The early bird gets the worm, right? You need to be there right as the sun's coming up. Sometimes that it conflicts with church, with worship. Same thing with deer season, right? When I was in school, first I think it was first opening day, no school. Why? Because we're out hunting deer. 
That's what's important. Well, for a lot of people, it's become an idol in their life. And many of these things have caused people to not seek ye first the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, Very common for both adults and children today to miss worship on Sunday for sporting events, whatever the issue may be. It's very common for both parents and children to miss Bible study on Wednesday. Oftentimes, it's usually parents are taking their children to every single activity under the sun, and they, the response is, is well, we, just, we, we can't get back in time, and so they just skip altogether. And then for those who are Christians who allow whatever any of these things are in our life to come before them and God, I simply want to go back and remind you of just one passage. And that's the passage that was given from Christ directly to the Laodiceans. Revelation 3, 15 and 16, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. If you're allowing anything to come before worship on Sunday, before Bible studies on Wednesdays, or in general, between you and God and being a faithful Christian in your everyday life, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're walking around telling people, I'm a Christian, but you're unfaithful, you're lukewarm. You're lukewarm. And it's because there's a various forms of idolatry, most likely, that have come between you and God. And it could be a number of the things I mentioned, or it could be more. So what's the biblical response to idols? Well, it could have listed a whole lot more. But what do we do about idols? Let's go back to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. I'll read 11 through 14. Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. Let me pause for a second. If you, many of you don't know what their groves are. So oftentimes pagan worship took place way up on a hill, and they had groves growing in the area. Uh, and that's where they did their idolatry. So he's saying literally destroy the altars, destroy the images, destroy the entire area right there where they were involved in idolatrous worship. He then goes on and clarifies... For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He's not going to tolerate you giving devotions to someone else or something else. right? No other gods and no idols. He's not going to, he's not going to uh, tolerate that. He is jealous. When I was trying to become a Christian, I read this passage. And it seriously impacted me. I was at work and I read this. My wife actually will probably remember this. And I called, I called on the phone to the house and said, go into the closet. And in the closet, there is a box. And in that box, I have a rosary. I have my Catholic Bible. I have all my Catholic religious items. And I said, take that box and throw it in the trash. You remember that? Because I read this and I realized that what I was doing was a form of superstition mixed with idolatry. Why am I saying a rosary time and time again with glory bees and Hail Marys? 
why, why would I have a St. Christopher's necklace and think, just like carving an image out of a piece of wood is going to protect me and be my God, why would I think wearing a necklace with a so-called saint on it is going to keep me safe? I knew that it wouldn't. I knew that it was wrong. And so the point simply is this. I said, throw them in the trash. I had to purge out that which I had, which I knew was some form of idolatry. And so whether it's an idolatrous thought or an idolatrous activity in your life, the point is simply this. You have got to literally purge it. You have to get rid of it. You have to clear it out. And the point is, is so that you can have all your devotion to God only and so that you can seek ye first the kingdom of God. Let's go on over to Mark 10. One more long passage here as we consider the rich young ruler. And he is a logical jump because as I read there in Exodus, he's saying, purge it out. Whatever it is that's hindering you from seeking the kingdom, get rid of it. And here you have a person who I would say is religious. I know that because of the way he addresses him. He calls Jesus master. And notice in Mark 10, 17, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running... And he kneeled to him. So apparently he's even, I mean, he even thinks this is an urgent matter. And he kneeled to him and he asked, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He's worrying about spiritual things, isn't he? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, and that is God. Jesus, it, Jesus is acknowledging that he is God in the flesh. And thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Jesus knew what his problem was. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And notice this. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Remember, I just mentioned whatever it is that causes you to not seek the kingdom of God first, you've got to purge it out. You have to get rid of it. You have to clear it out, just as they were told to do all the way back there in the book of Exodus. And here you have this rich young ruler. He is told what to do to have eternal life. That was his question. And after he gets the answer, basically, purge this out. Get it out of your life. And his response is... I'm not going to do it. Here's the sad thing. Unfortunately, there are many who have hesitated to obey the gospel, have been hindered from obeying the gospel, may never obey the gospel due to the things and the different activities in this world. They're idols in their lives. And it's extremely sad. And the same can be said for many who are actual Christians, but they're unfaithful because they have some different type of idolatry in their life that is prohibiting them or hindering them from being faithful. And guys, when it comes to the judgment, there's a lot of things that aren't going to be very important. When it comes to the judgment, I guarantee you, as you stand before Christ, you will not be, you will not be wondering, did I have enough money in my bank account? You aren't going to be worrying about who scored the final touchdown, who had the best dunk or scored the winning shot, who had the longest home run or won the, won the game, who had the biggest fish, who, who caught the biggest deer, who spent the most number of hours at work and was the employee of the month, and the list goes on and on. None of those things are going to come to your mind when you are at the feet of Christ on the day of judgment. But the things that will come to mind is, did I do His will? Was I faithful? 
And that's the only thing that's going to matter. That's it. Did you seek first the kingdom of God? Here's the question. Have you obeyed the gospel? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, what's hindering you from obeying the gospel? And if you have obeyed the gospel and you are a Christian, are there things in your life that are causing you to seek not first the kingdom of God? Every one of us needs to spend a little bit of time looking within ourselves and asking ourselves, are there areas where I'm being hindered? It may be things that we would never even see even though we spend time among, amongst each other, right? There may be things that, that literally absorb all of our time uh, and it's causing us to be unfaithful. If you're here, if you're watching this online, I, I want to spend just a second talking about obeying the gospel. I'm going to give you the passages. Uh, I'm not going to, I usually quote them all from memory. I am not. Uh, most people, when you ask them how to become a Christian, they simply say something like this. Well, just ask Jesus into your heart uh, and you'll be saved. It's not in the Bible. It's nowhere to be found in the Bible. Uh, that didn't become famous or popular until Billy Graham started espousing that error. Here's what I want you to do. If you're watching this online or if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, the book of Acts or the book of conversion shows how people became Christians. And the way they became Christians in the first century is the same way people become Christians today. People were going around and they were teaching the gospel. You had ministers, or we call them evangelists, or you call them preachers. They were simply teaching who Jesus was. Romans 10, 17, so that faith cometh by hearing. Maybe I'll quote some of them. So these people were simply going around and teaching who Jesus was. He was the Messiah. And they were telling why He came. Jesus came to shed His blood to establish the church. And you need to believe that, John 8, 24. Jesus said, if you don't believe that I'm the Messiah, you're going to die in your sins. And then they began to tell the people in the crowd, just like in Acts chapter 2, that they were guilty of sin and that they needed to repent. It's the same thing that Jesus taught in Luke 13, 3 and 5. But it wasn't just that they needed to believe in Jesus, and it wasn't just that they needed to repent, they needed to confess Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10. You actually see that there in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. But confessing Christ isn't enough either. They were all, every one of them, immersed in water for the remission of sins. That's what Peter tells those Jews after he calls them out in Acts chapter 2. He tells them they need to repent and be baptized. Jesus says you need to believe and be baptized, Mark 16, 15, and 16. 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.21 says that baptism is unto salvation. You will find no person anywhere ever in the New Testament who became a Christian and was saved apart from the culminating act of baptism. And that is because baptism puts you in the water, Romans 6, 3, and 4, which is a burial in water in which you come up a new creation in Christ. Just as Jesus, Jesus died and was buried and resurrected, Christians are buried and resurrected. And that's how simple it is to become a Christian. But that, just ask Jesus into your heart, that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. There have been people for years asking where that is at. And as a matter of fact, I mentioned this before, uh, one of my, really look up to him, one of, the, one of my uh, instructors in school, he actually spoke with Billy Graham and asked him, can you show me in the Bible where it says that? And Billy Graham acknowledged, it doesn't say that, but he said this, who has the crowds? He wasn't worried about saving people. He's worried about preaching watered-down sermons where he could get 45,000 people. I don't need a lot of people, but I'll tell the truth. They heard the word. They believed he was Christ. They repented of their sins. They confessed him, and they were immersed in water. 
for the remission of sins. When you do that, you're added to the church by the Lord Himself. Acts 2, verse 47. We don't add you to the church. We don't add your name to a roster. The Lord knows when you've done what you're supposed to do, and He adds you to the church. And here's the hard part. You then need to be faithful, right? That's the hard part. Don't allow forms of idolatry to come in between you and God. However, we know, as hard as it is to be faithful, we will mess up. We will make mistakes, and we can repent of that. We can turn from it and continue to walk in the light, and the blood of Jesus Christ will continue to cleanse us. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9. That's how simple it is to become a Christian and remain a faithful Christian. If you're here and you're not a Christian yet, let one of us uh, schedule time to sit and talk with you. If you are here and you are a Christian, if there's areas you've been struggling, repent of that, change your life, continue to walk in the light, and be faithful. If there's a way we can help you, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.